about here. Where? Middle of nowhere. Well, it looks like we got some customers, please. You ain't giving the lady a hard time now, are you? This is my place. I do whatever I want here in my place. <laughs> People after us, and the guy with a chainsaw. You saw what? A chainsaw. I got some people hurt down here, and I, I need your help. We got the means, we got the machine. How you like Texas? Fuckers <laughs> wrong with you. Hungry, give her a pizza. I like this. Come on, come on. What are the chances of a So, Leatherface, Texas Chainsaw Massacre Three, is about the, a new chainsaw family, different from uh, the first one and the second one, versus uh, Kate Haas and William Butler. And lots of carnage ensues, and you have a heavy metal soundtrack, and by that you have a heavy metal leather face. Hello, and welcome back to Scream Addicts. I'm Jinx, your host, and that was Heather Buckley talking about Jeff Burr's 1990 horror sequel, Leatherface, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3. Ms. Buckley is a film journalist, award-winning FX shop supervisor, and Rondo award-winning producer whose latest film, The Ranger, is currently in post-production. Ms. Buckley, thanks so much for being on the show. I'm so happy to be on your show. And a shout-out to Jerry Smith, who tagged me on Twitter. <laughs> about the 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 one of the people in the world that could talk about Texas Chainsaw Massacre three. We, uh, you know, I I joked before on the show, but now I'm starting to think that it's true that Jerry is essentially the uh, the official booking agent for Scream Addicts. He is uh, he's sort of wrangled in a number of different people that uh, I I think he would enjoy listening to on the show, and as a result, I enjoy talking to. So uh, so yeah, thanks Jerry if you're out there listening. So I gotta ask, out of you know, we begin every episode by asking our guests why they chose the movie they did to talk about. So out of any horror movie you might have gone with, why Leatherface? I I joke and then I not joke that Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3 is my favorite horror film of all time. It is incredibly important to me because Chainsaw itself is fundamental structure of genre. I was just at the Alamo Draft House in Yonkers giving an intro to the original, the 74 one in 35, and I mentioned there that this film, without it, it transformed modern horror genre, the intensity of it, the simplicity of it. When I watch it, it's almost like a, like a miracle, but I didn't come across chainsaw because I've saw them all out of order. I saw two and I fell in love with Leatherface and the family and my sister and I would quote incessantly from this film. And I was reading gore zone at the time because I actually started with gore zone magazine. I started with nine. And then when I was at 11, Leatherface was on the cover, and I went, Leatherface, my love is on the cover of Gorzon. They're making another chainsaw film. And it's also the gateway that introduced me to Fangoria. Because when I was looking at the Leatherface on, because just a Gorzon reader, didn't ever pick up a Fangoria, I'm looking at the Gorzon magazine. And then when I turn like just a half inch, I go, what is this magazine called Fangoria that also has Leatherface? on the cover and it just blew my mind when I was around like 13 years old that there's another Leatherface leather face film. So to me, it's it's what surrounds the film because Chainsaw is so important and it's just 
how this chainsaw family is made, what Leatherface looks like. That I that's the first chainsaw I saw in the theater with my father and with my sister. I have the Distortions three chainsaw mask. I was Leatherface for Halloween, like most chicks my age. <laughs> I was because I had long brown hair. Like I have a punk bihawk now, but I had long brown hair, and I wear the whole outfit. And I even took the fake blood and sort of put it on the mask. Because there's a scene, um, some of the publicity skill stills is kind of on his face, like the hitchhiker's birthmark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's this. So there's a lot of reasons. There's not one succinct reason why. Just I have great, I have great affection. When I was watching the first Chainsaw, I posted on social media that it's as if I'm watching s- someone that I'm in love with, and I feel <laughs> that way about two, which I own on 35 millimeter. Do you really? And I, I do, I wow. do. And I and I also have a lot of the behind the scenes actual negatives of making of Chainsaw Two. Oh my god! And they're on the uh, the Arrow release because I do a lot of work with uh, Mike Felser, who's also a huge Chainsaw fan. And one of my 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 dreams because it's not on Blu-ray yet, and I know they don't go out of you, you know this very in-house New Line Cinema when they when they do their discs, but if they could find it in their heart. To let me do the extras if three ever comes out on Blu-ray. I've also tracked down, like I bugged Randy from NECA. Like, when am I getting my Part Three Leatherface? And it's finally out there. You mean they've they've designed it? I saw it at Toy Fair, but it's not out to buy yet. So there's a lot of stuff of my obsession around Chainsaw. It's kind of like a crazy wild bees nest of like why this girl loves Texas Chainsaw Massacre Three. But there's so many reasons. There's so many aspects. There are dimensions to my obsession. And fascination with it. I mean, if it that entire series, because I love one through four, I have a very deep affinity towards ensemble films and ensemble films with character actors. And out of any franchise, genre franchise, that's like the Robert Altman (laughs) is the Chainsaw series. Because it's like, let's get some great dialogue and a bunch of character actors. Because Leatherface in that movie, it's like, he's not like everyone's you know not really fancy and then you have jason you know halloween was a little different everybody seemed like an uh, on an even a uh, playing field or the characters were really really re- well written but like in leatherface it's like he slightly more important than like in in the first one he's just such an I- iconic presence and then in two i mean it's, it's it's hard to say because it's also about the people that surround him, the villain, the villainous characters that surround him. I mean, we can even say villain, his family. And even the and heroes. Me, I mean, Lefty is almost as crazy as he is by the end. Well, I mean, because they're, they're Texas people. And I, I, was, I was working on a, a documentary about Chainsaw 2 because of, because of my, my, my images. And I've, I've, I tried for years to get Toby to say yes to this project. And, you know... It, when we ran out the ran out the clock to get his participation, but I just his his loss that we that we've lost him. It really it really hit me because I again I just think of a world where the chainsaw family, Leatherface, all that stuff that didn't exist, and to me it's very it's very heartbreaking. Yeah, it's been a rough year to be a horror fan. It really has, and. His passing definitely hurt quite a bit. You know, it was, I, it, that's why it seemed like kind of so perfect that you chose this movie. It's funny that we should be talking about Leatherface right now because, you know, 
you know, Toby Hooper did just pass away. And we're also getting a brand new Texas Chainsaw film in the next month or so, which is also called Leatherface. And I'm so glad to hear that you love this movie so much because I, I love it too, but it seems to me like, uh, I don't know. It, it, it feels like, I know the movie has its fans, but it almost feels like Leatherface is kind of this near invisible entry in the franchise. You know, it isn't the worst uh, entry in the franchise. I think most people would agree with that. And, um, you know, it. I, I think a lot of people, you know, by and large would say that it's not necessarily the best in the franchise. But And it didn't make the biggest splash or have the same sort of release that, say, the Platinum Dunes films had. But it just feels a little underloved, in my opinion. And I, I don't know, would you agree that fans should definitely maybe give this film another look and reconsider it. It feels like it's time to reappraise Leatherface and it's time for that big special edition Blu-ray to be put out and for, you know, people to give it another shot. I think, I think, I think the love of Leatherface is, I mean, I don't meet too many people that are in love with Texas Chainsaw Massacre three and I've been around horror world and we were really three. All right. So the first one chainsaw comes out in cans Bought in three days. It's at the Museum of Modern Art. Respectable. Part two came out like what right when canon was falling apart. People were not expecting such a horror comedy. I think in the years that's preceded it, though it hasn't re- it hasn't reached Halloween three status of obs- of accepting that it's a great film is, nah, is sort nah. of on their way. It's true that three is the invisible sequel. And I think a lot of people have not really revisited 90s horror. I mean, I was very young in nine, uh, during the 90s, during the horror cycle. And you could still see any, and most any titles in the theater in 35 millimeter. Just like when I saw Leatherface with my father and my sister. There were like seven people in that theater. But I don't care. Like Those are the right seven people to see, to see Chainsaw. And I was already amped. Because on MTV, Tom Kenny was on the set of Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, talking to K&B, <laughs> talking to Ari Mihailov. I have it on because I waited next to my VCR because I would record all this stuff from, from television, like when Hellraiser 3 came out and Doug Bradley was dressed as Pinhead and the red carpet in front of the Man's Chinese Theater. I have all that documented from when I was young. I remember having to do that myself, too. And if any listeners out there don't appreciate this, just keep in mind that back in the day, if you wanted to see any behind-the-scenes footage or trailers or anything, you couldn't just hop on the YouTube. Like, you had to wait for the programs to come on. And if you wanted to keep them, you would have to hover over that record button on your VCR and pray that you hit it quickly enough so that you got the entire thing. It's very true. And I and think as you – because I was a definitely a teenage pirate <laughs> I would, I would lock up the two VCRs like it's like oh my god, Evil Dead Two Letterbox unrated, and then I would make my I would make my family go to like all these video stores, and put them together, and I have these these mixtapes. So I do have the making of Chainsaw that was on TV on one of my VHS because I still have my VHS. I never I never gave it away, and I have like a Switcher DVD VCR analog TV setup because though I produce Blu-rays, I do not have a flat screen or a Blu-ray player. It's true. So when I'm sitting and watching MTV, like the trailer, the Excalibur chainsaw trailer comes on. It's so good. It's just wonderful. <laughs> and I can't even like, even to you, like it's mysterious 
And I would have to look like I'd have to go like deep into like my background and family dynamic, my complete obsession with the chainsaw series. Because like my dad was like hunter, redneck, always there was like animals he killed around the house that I would play with as a young girl, draw them. And then like I was this creepy child that would go and draw and look at my horror stuff and sort of like hide in my bedroom. So I think all that together starts creating an interest in this strange feral families. And when I was uh, when I was working on my uh, chainsaw chainsaw two thing is that I talked to Joe Bob Briggs about it <laughs> and he was fascinated because I'm from New Jersey. And he agreed. It's like Jersey and Texas, so much in common. Weird, backwoods people, rednecks, whole thing. Also, pride in the state that maybe you shouldn't be that prideful about. Because <laughs> when I, because I was down, I was down the shore watching some shows play. And let me tell you, when you're in Asbury Park, it's like all the cars say Jersey Strong on it, all the t-shirts t- with the jerseys on it. I was actually on the on the on the phone with um the film commission in New Jersey, and they're also like, "You want to shoot in Jersey? Your phone number is like seven three two, and it's just something. It's like we enjoy that. And my my the stuff that I do a lot of times when I have to call up like, talent or FX guys or VFX guys, they'll notice my seven three two number and they'll just stop, like regardless of how what kind of it's like. Wait, it's like, are you from New Jersey? <laughs> and then it's just they need to talk about Jersey. Well, and when I go in LA, I hang out with the people who have moved from New Jersey to LA. So there's just, I think, I think part of that is Jersey's kind of like Jersey grotesque, and Texas is a Texas grotesque as well. So there's also that fascinating because I, I loved reading Faulkner and the strange things that happen from these backwoods communities. There's, so there's that layer of fascination in Chainsaw and Three, because you can't because you can't talk about Three unless you got to talk about at least I talk about them all together because it's it's a continuum. Maybe that's how we get people to appreciate Three. Is that to me it's like one through three is a is a continuum. While one is very sacred to watch, it's very intense, and I think you to receive that sacrament you have to be in a certain mindset to enjoy Chainsaw. You need to be really focused on it. And it's very affecting. Number two, Baroque, large, but like three, I could just put three on as a background noise. I like looking at it. I like looking at the character actors. To me, it's something that I just, it's, it's also like my, my love of ghoulies too. It's something that makes me so happy. I agree. And it seems to perfectly capture like uh, a certain time in horror that, again, I you mentioned it. Um, 90s horror, I think, hasn't really been revisited yet. It doesn't get the love that other uh, other decades have yet. And I think the you know I think that time's coming. I for the longest time I think people sort of believe that um, the '90s was kind of like this wasteland for horror that wasn't sort of saved until uh, you know Wes Craven did Scream and you know that sort of revitalized the genre. But I mean there are a lot of great films and you know in that decade and Leatherface is certainly one of them. And it also you know, I maybe it was growing up and being kind of young and, you know, catching bits and pieces and glimpses of Leatherface before actually watching the entire movie. Um, you, you know, and just catching those glimpses would scare the hell out of me. Hell, the Excalibur teaser trailer would scare the hell out of me. I mean, here was this thing that looked kind of like a, uh, a family drama. Then it kind of looked like maybe some sort of fantasy action film. And then, uh, 
And then Leatherface turns around and he's got a chainsaw and I'm pretty sure I still carry the scars from that. But um but when it comes to nineties horror movies, I there are some of them that feel kind of more dangerous than any of the movies you would expect coming out of the eighties. And this was around the time that there was sort of that splatterpunk aesthetic, you know, in mostly books, you know, I'm thinking of like the Skip Inspector books or, you know, the work of David J. Scout, you know, who wrote Leatherface and coined that term or, uh, or even something like North Star Comics or Gore Shriek and the like. And I kind of appreciate Leatherface as being like this true splatterpunk kind of movie. And there aren't that many really that I can think of that do Clive, it so Clive well. Clive Barker's films. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. That's as close as you get to, to Splatterpunk. But that, to me, it's it was a sacred time for me because, well, today everything's available. I could only, like, there's no way that I could have gotten a hold of, like, David Scow's books. And I tried, and I would go to, like, the, the little bookstores and the mall and borders and try to find this, the Splatterpunk stuff, and it was impossible. And sometimes I'd be able to get some of it and. Um, like Douglas E. Winter's uh, Prime Evil, like things like that. Sometimes there was collections of, of books that I was able to sort of access that rock and roll horror energy that leather that Leatherface has. But the 90s had like Jacob's Ladder and Candyman and Silence of the Lambs. There's some there's some good things that came from the 90s. There's also the struggle, and as, as a Fangorian, because I will always go back to that because it was so much of my life, is the hatred of the MPAA and Jack Valenny. <laughs> this was a reason a lot of these films may have felt more dangerous is because they were always on the precipice of getting gutted. Now there's no danger. Like post-Saw, studios can put out whatever they want, be completely gory, nobody, nobody touches anything. But I think New Line Cinema and a lot of places like that, it's like they were on people's radar of not being as fa- maybe as fancy as the giant studios. And maybe the MPA felt that they could they could pick on them more because Leatherface was was trimmed by the MPA. And, and just growing up, you would hear so much of your beloved movies. It's like, but I want to see the monsters. I want to see the gore. I want to see the violence. And they're sort of keeping that away from us. And now it's, you know, films like Baskin. Yeah. Super like Jodorowsky <laughs> style gore, and then the entire like underground horror film movement, you know, with their crazy snuff gore cinema, just everywhere. Yeah, I mean, you can walk into any horror convention and see sort of like table setups with indie films that, I mean, the covers alone are worse than anything that was ever cut out of a movie in the eighties and nineties. You know, I think everyone was inspired by Cannibal Corpse covers, and then they made movies that are like Cannibal Corpse covers. <laughs> that was always my theory. Like, oh god, that is I, I, yeah, I can totally kind of see that. I think about these things a lot. <laughs> Well, you mentioned like, you know, the first three movies being in sort of a continuum, but I'm wondering about, you know, rewatching the movie. And I've always sort of wondered this, but, you know, anytime I revisit the movie, these these thoughts, you know, come back to me. I wonder about the continuity because the movie opens with, you know, yet another voiceover and a bit of scrolling text, which briefly sort of covers the events of the first movie. And then it tells us that Sally died in 1977, which is, you know, it's kind of a bummer. But um, it also tells tells us that this you know, there was this family member who stood trial for the murders in that first film, and that's W.E. Sawyer. And I'm wondering, who the hell is W.E. Sawyer? Uh, eventually, he's a character who pops up in, you know, The Next Generation, which continuity-wise is even more of a mess, kind of. But I, I just, 
I just wonder how it is that any one of the family members would have stood trial. And I kind of want to see that movie. I kind of want to see the Texas Chainsaw courtroom drama, you know? But, oh, that, uh, is a, that is a great idea. I have <laughs> at my house Ed Gein's court, court transcripts as someone who's also ghoulish. Really? It's, it's signed by the, by the judge. I think it was a birthday present or Christmas present given to me. Okay, if we can go Because my friends love me. If we can pause the Leatherface chat for a second, because I'm borderline obsessed with Ed Gein, how did they come across something like that? I think it was online or something, and also I, I'm fat. I'm fascinated with like a true. And there's some, and I've done a podcast about that. There's some of us that are just we live in shame because we're horror fans and true crime fans, and it's always looked down upon because it's like this is what they say horror fans are. You're ghoulish. You watch this horrible <laughs> stuff. So that. So that's me. So I'm a bad representative of a genre, of a genre fan. I am not an up, up, upstanding citizen. No, 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 no. I would, I would so say I was, you're a great example of a genre fan because I, again, I grew up in the 80s and 90s and I definitely felt that way in high school. I was the one kid in my class, maybe in the entire school, okay, certainly in my entire school, who would carry around, you know, Fangoria magazine in my Trapper Keeper. You know, I, I was the one yes. nerdy kid who loved, loved both comic books and horror movies. And yeah, there you're right. There was a little bit of a shame to that where it's like until admittedly until Scream came out and then all of a sudden everybody was cool with horror. But that was only like the last couple of years of high school. It didn't really do me a whole hell of a lot of good for the preceding, you know, God knows how many years. But now now that we have social media, now that we have Twitter, now that horror is cool again or whatever, and you can kind of design your friend bases, you know, when when you go online. I mean, there never needs to be any shame for being a fan of anything anymore, I don't think, because you can just very easily kind of cut those people out of your life. Oh, I'm specifically talking about horror fans that like true crime stuff. True crime, real gore, stuff like that. So I am on I am on that spectrum. So my reading about like Ed Gein and Ted Bundy and Charles Manson it's always it's always been a big big part of my personality and, and interest and fascination that human it's almost like a night of the living dead it's like we are we are them and they are us it's like they're human beings but there's something so profoundly wrong with them and that i just can't help but to like to look at it like looking at an existential void it's hypnotizing to me so that's why I was I was given the book because he, um, my friend knows my my interest in true crime stuff and I think he just came across it on eBay and yes the full transcriptions I keep it in my bedroom it's right actually next to my bird cage filled with bones <laughs> that's awesome because I do I had there's a Robert Burns theme to my entire household and myself like I do like wear animal bones and stuff like that and I call it being a chainsaw punk. Because it's like a much more feral cannibal punk. It's like, what if Pluto from Hills Have Eyes had a daughter who listened to Sex Pistols? And that's kind of how I look when I dress. <laughs> so it's like post-apocalyptic cannibal chainsaw punk. That's awesome. And I, you know, I, I can imagine there is a lot of crossover between horror fans and true crime fans. I mean, I... I I, I can't imagine that a diehard horror fan wouldn't have at least a passing interest in true crime. You know, that... some some don't, and they're like dead set dead set against it. Some some of my friends are just they're hardliners against wow. that stuff. For me, because I also have the counterculture punk rock background, so I even approach genre in a very interesting way. Because I would always look at 
the villain character, the anti-hero hero character, the the other character, and a lot of the the true crime stuff. It's sort of this this mythology. It's 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 creating these characters, looking at the 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 myth of it, right? The myth of like Ed Gein, Manson, stuff like that, as as entities that were so against society, you know, truly antisocial, truly ripping down society's uh, uh, constructs, which looks a little bit like punk rock. Yeah, absolutely. And oftentimes, I mean, you know, the the craziest thing about Ed Gein to me is not all of the horror that happened. Well, certainly all of the horror that the man wrought, but the fact that it was happening in the heartland, it was happening in Wisconsin. You know, I, I that fascinates me. And reading like the the Harold Schechter book yes. about Gein, and, you know, basically how he sets the stage for everything that was unveiled by presenting you know, the town of Plainfield as being just, you know, it was just any other town. It was just a normal place in the 1950s. And then all of a sudden, you know, all these people realized that the nice, kindly, quiet man who would occasionally make gifts of venison to them, you know, was in fact a monster. I just, I, I'm fascinated by that. I, I have an equal fascination for stories like that that I do with fiction. So It's true because he was, he was just someone next door, but there's a little, there's a little bit of that in Chainsaw, like the first one, because they are next door to to Sally's parents' house, but a little bit down the ways, the the Chainsaw house, the farmhouse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's almost like they're hiding in plain sight. I think you know, obviously they've probably kept Leatherface, you know, behind locked doors for the most part. I would have to imagine, you know, uh, but there is that sort of veneer of, I don't know, normality to an extent, especially when it comes to the cook, you know. Chainsaw 2, they're underground, but then, like, Drayton is the figurehead that goes out in general population. And 3, it's Vigo Mortison, who I think is kind of like the normal-looking part of the family. He's almost like the Marilyn Munster of the family. Oh, totally. Yeah, he's the, in a weird way, he's the siren. Uh who kind of, you know, draws victims in, I think, or at least in this case draws Michelle in a little bit. Um, Yeah, and I think he's kind of fascinating too, especially played by Mortensen, where he's kind of charming, but, you know, there is that sort of undercurrent of menace to him from the very beginning. I don't know if they were trying to fully hide that or not, but, you know, maybe we just don't quite pay attention to it that much because he's overshadowed by Alfredo, who's like inhaling the scenery with every line, but... It feels like there's something a little bit off about Tex, even when we're meant to think that he's maybe a good guy and a hero at the very beginning. Well, we're in a, te- a movie called Leatherface, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. <laughs> so I so I think the idea of like hiding chainsaw families, hiding people's insanity, probably not the reason for that script. But yes, Alfredo. My, my sister and I love two can quote every line from two we can also quote most of the lines from three and whose key dialogue that we quote all the time is is tom everett's as alfredo (laughs) he has such great dialogue in that film and it's wild and why is his name alfredo yeah and the fact that he's like he almost feels at times like chop top or the hitchhiker on fast forward like it's amazing sort of the stuff that he is spewing out at like a motor mouth kind of speed. There's, there's a great banter. I mean, if we had to compare these films to my, you know, as, as I mentioned, like Altman, but things like the dirty dozen or like Kelly's heroes, 
where you just give great dialogue to character actors to say. David J. Scow wrote some great dialogue for these guys. And they're all up for saying it. Because they don't, no one is above the crazy shit that they're asked to say. And it's just endlessly amusing to watch them deliver dialogue, wander around. It's one reason why I, I'm a huge Tarantino fan. Because I just love actors reading great dialogue. It's like a radio play. Absolutely. It's it's like magic when you get like the, the, the connection between like the perfect actor with the perfect monologue or, you know, a couple of actors sort of riffing on dialogue with one another. I, I agree. It's I could watch that all day. Even, you know, you mentioned Tarantino. I his movies are great. I love them. I adore them. I, I, I love the plots. And yet at the same time, I could just watch his characters chat about nothing all day. I could listen to Jules and Vincent just talk, uh, you know, fast food burger chains for a couple of hours and be completely fine with that because they're so damned interesting. Um, and I agree, like, when when you hear Alfredo talking, and sometimes it's very easy to miss some of the stuff that he's saying sort of under his breath at 90 miles an hour. And uh, I got to say... Um, some of his dialogue that appeared in the uh, the, the comic book adaptation, which I don't – are you aware there uh, – I mentioned North Star Comics earlier. They actually put out a four-issue adaptation of Leather My friend, Comic Book 4. My fr- who do you think you're talking to? <laughs> I have the comic. I had the poster. I have it on VHS. I have it on DVD. I begged at my video store, video, video, video magic to have like the VHS that's cracked open with leather face and the chainsaw coming out of there. And then in my house, I still have my distortions chainsaw three mess, which I mentioned because I was leather face for, for Halloween that year, but I have my distortions three masks. So my friend, I do have the leather face comic and my sister and I used to read it constantly. That's why there's some, primal thing why the Buckley family and the Sawyers is just there has to be something there that's deeper that I maybe we could penetrate in this podcast but I don't know what it is but also my <laughs> sister's love of of, of Chainsaw I was going to go back to two is that I have and sometimes I would write about him in Fangoria and he's on Facebook if you want to be his friend when I was a little girl my sister and I loved Chainsaw 2 so much I named my Cabbage Patch Kid Nubbins <laughs> because like I, it's a mishearing of Nubbins and he's still around but yeah that's what we had and then it took a while one of my close friends told me it's like do you realize it's like Nummins, your Nummins is a doll baby, as is Nubbins in Chainsaw 2. Because they're playing, because it's, and I never made that connection that they're both doll babies. So it's fascinating. That is great. I love that. You know, with, you know, you're mentioning 2 again. It reminds me, the opening credit scroll of this movie, you know, it mentions the W.E. Sawyer. It, do you feel like there is a continuity between part two and Leatherface because on the one hand if we're to take the opening credits scroll as uh, I don't know a, a, a complete account of everything that's happened up until this point then it sort of wipes two out of continuity in a way but at the same time Leatherface is called Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3 and we do have that uh, cameo with Carolyn Williams presumably playing Stretch again you know at the very beginning of the movie so I don't know what are your feelings on that do you think that two and three exist within the same continuity and if so how do you account for that weird sort of um ignoring of events from the previous movie at the very beginning of this one i always thought w.e sawyer was drayton sawyer 
So that would be like Jim Cito's character had to go to jail and was it was captured in Nomland where they were, the Texas kind of playground in two. That's what I assumed happened in three. I always had a slight fan theory, and I it was feel it was very controversial. Sure, they're the Sawyers, but how do you know? Because I I have this we'll call this theory Chainsaw Family, and I've, I've I've talked about it in front of a in front of a crowd. Kevin Mars, like, Kevin's geeked out. It's like, Heather, you need to talk about Chainsaw because Chainsaw is important for you. Talk about Toby Hooper's work when you talk about... And I said, I, I need to... Chainsaw family. So I feel a Chainsaw family is a nuclear family that they're sort of found people that are in common with, with you, people that love you, people who never leave. I mean, that's the reason why they keep corpses and stuff like that. And you can be as wild as insane, but they seem to have this great loyalty you know like outsiders there's an arts and crafts aspect to it so i was wondering like in part one and two it's like is that a family or they're just like i had i've had aunts in my life that aren't related to me or did they find each other because it just seems like the sequence as you move into four he keeps finding different cannibal families that are made up of like particular individuals and i was just wondering it's like does does leatherface go from family to family and meet and and is it because that's like because one again my heart for Leatherface and Chainsaw it's like he goes to a family he's a misfit he's a cat he's so different than other people and he goes there he's accepted by family after family that all love him that don't go you're adopted I don't love you but there's there's a kindness that I see within that clan so I never was like this is a whole new family it's like well this is another chainsaw family that loves him and accepts him. And were they the original brothers in the first and second one, or were they just yet another family he found to be with, or did they all find each other? Because you can't tell in three or four that they're actually related. Are there just cannibal groups that come together? I'd like to think so. And I think, remind me, is it in this movie or is it in the comic book adaptation? But I think there's this almost throwaway moment where one of the characters sort of um, uh, comes across like a a modem or a computer setup. And I I wonder if it doesn't float the idea that that's how people like the Sawyers or people like the Chainsaw families, as it were, sort of keep in contact with one another. And that's kind of a terrifying idea. The, You know, it's scary enough to think that there would be any family like the Sawyers living in the heart of Texas. But imagine if they're spread out throughout Texas or even throughout the country and they keep in contact. I, I Yeah, and I got to imagine that, you know, taking care of Leatherface probably – is trying at times, and maybe they just pass him from uh, from from house to house, uh, and he takes Grandpa with him. I don't know. <laughs> That's t- to me when you. I don't know if that horrifies you, but for me, it just makes like the Grinch my heart grow three times as bigger. Because <laughs> my because one I tell like as I tell people, Friday Thirteen Part Seven is the most handsome Jason Voorhees, the most handsome Leatherface is in three. That's another reason why I love in three. His design with his long hair. That mask, the leg brace, love it. You know, someone me was a huge fan of Crash. <laughs> oh my god, I just got that. I'm so dumb. It took me that long. Yeah. Oh god. Why did you remind me of the leg brace from Crash? He's just he's super hot. He's super hot. again, heavy metal splatter punk leather face. And it's true because as I was thinking, we we're talking about like I love one because it's stripped back and I love punk rock. Number two is a little bit more, as I mentioned, Baroque. Three is like you're stripping it back again. 
but in a different sort of way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, I I love the tone of the film. I love the atmosphere. I love I I, I love the metalness of it in a way. And I uh, have, I, I have I, on cassette that soundtrack. Yeah, I, the, the the fact that the movie ends with a song that eventually screams Leatherface at us, you know? I, so tacky. I adore it. I adore it so much. Uh, I, I wish there had been more sequels like Leatherface. And I, I guess I kind of appreciate that each Texas Chainsaw, up to a point, they're all very different from one another. But at the same time, like, I, I would like to imagine an alternate 1990s where we got maybe another two or three movies that felt like Leatherface, you know, because well, it feels like a horror movie. It's a studio film. I know it killed Jeff Burr kind of to make it. <laughs> you watch uh, the 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 making of, and I've got to meet Jeff and tell him that Chainsaw Three is my most favorite film ever. Oh, that's awesome! And while I was in Chattanooga Film Fest, it's like Jeff Burr. You mean the director of Chainsaw Three? <laughs> and he is like, uh, you know, looking at his stuff too. I was looking back at his filmography. He did From a Whisper to a Scream, you know, that anthology. He did Stepfather 2, which I think is actually a really solid sequel. He did, uh, you know, Puppet Masters 4 and 5. He did Pumpkinhead 2. He did Night of the Scarecrow. He had a pretty cool run of films there, and it kind of bums me out to look and see that he he hasn't been making that many movies recently and definitely not at the level that he used to. And I, I, I just I wonder what happened to his career where – that stopped being an option for him or possible for him in a way, because I, I would like to see a brand new Jeff Burr studio horror movie. You know, I would like to see what he could do with today's tools. I I think he can make something very, very cool. Well, I believe when I spoke to him, he had a lot of things that he was, he was working on. And in the, the doc, he mentions, you know, he's independent filmmaker to me. He's like, he's like a journeyman filmmaker. You give him the material and, he just comes up with some great stuff. Makes yeah, it happen. Yeah, and two, you know, I, I looking past Jeff Burr, I mean, this movie is written by, we mentioned David J. Scow, who, you know, so far as screenplays go, he also wrote, uh, you know, Critters 3 and 4, which I think are a lot of fun. He wrote The Crow, which is one of my very favorite movies of all time. Uh, he eventually revisited the franchise with Texas Chainsaw, The Beginning, which I, I was stunned at the amount of hate that that movie caught when it came out, because to me, I it kind of gave me everything that I wanted out of a Texas Chainsaw prequel that I didn't really want in the first place. You know, I, I consider those both to be Pleatherface. <laughs> so it's they're both beautifully shot, the prequel and and the and the remake. And again, I love the family aspect of it and the outsider aspect of it and all the production design that goes in it. It's just Leatherface is not Jason Voorhees, and it just seems a lot of these remakes or to remove that nuance. Cause the same thing with Rob Zombie's uh, Halloween, Michael Myers is a giant juggernaut. And it's like, no, Jason Voorhees is a giant juggernaut. Maybe, he, maybe Rob Zombie should have remade Friday the thir- 13th. That needs to be revisited. I think zombie... I can't believe they got that wrong. Cause it's so simple. And yet out of any of the major horror franchises, that you could attach Rob Zombie to. I'm stunned that he has never done a Texas Chainsaw. Like his aesthetic seems to be so perfectly Texas Chainsaw to me. Like I, and I still kind of feel like House of a Thousand Corpses is his Texas Chainsaw in a way. It's his Chainsaw too. Yeah, oh, totally, totally, totally. I mean, that's, I mean, I think somebody pointed this out on maybe a podcast or maybe an article I was reading somewhere, but somebody said that, I mean, if you basically marry 
like Spider Baby and Texas Chainsaw 2, then you have Rob Zombie's aesthetic. And it's like, well, yeah, that's that's kind of true. That's not a bad thing. I don't know if they were saying that to knock him, but uh, I, I kind of would love to see an honest-to-goodness Texas Chainsaw movie directed by the man because I, I think that could be kind of fascinating. I would say no to that. <laughs> <laughs> it, I, but you would watch it. You would be a little interested at least. Anything that's a horror movie, I'll watch it. That's what people like. What is your? Because I know I say Chainsaw Three is my favorite horror film, but it's like my favorite horror movie is horror movie. Like you can't get me to watch anything else. You have to like like what is? It? Do I have time? Do I was like oh a horror movie? <laughs> well then, let's just put that on. <laughs> I, I'm I'm much the same way. I I gotta say I I how do you feel about Rob Zombie overall? Do you do you just not not want him to approach Texas Chainsaw or are you maybe not an overall fan of his work? Would you say Rob Zombie, I think is an interesting director. He has an interesting taste. There's no doubt that he is not like, like he might be more of a horror fan than we are and have more knowledge about the genre than, than we are. I wouldn't put it past him, but there's a, there's a gap between the ability to know about horror and be a filmmaker. And he's sort of like in that world, like his production design is good. His casting is a little bit too monster mania chiller convention for my, for my, for my taste sometimes. But I do appreciate that he gives a lot of the sort of like long lost character actors, amazing parts. Cause whatever I think about Lords of Salem, I don't think it really worked because there's no dramatic fall for the main character, but Meg Foster's performance is, is stunning and brave devil's rejects is my if he could do chainsaw like he does devil's rejects and remove all these flares flourishes things that are distracting because the script isn't that strong if he could do something like that i would give him the the chainsaw franchise and i know a lot of people hated 31 which is why i wanted to see it and mr jerry smith is a big fan of 31 but it's just it's like a slasher film with clowns yeah i you know, I didn't hate it. It's very well made. Uh, it, and I've already worked on a slasher film with clowns. But the first movie that I did to help with special effects on was Circus of the Dead. Ah, very cool. I I, I think Zombie's biggest problem, I think you mentioned it just a second ago, it's I love his eye. I think he has a good control of tone, like the atmosphere that he sets with each movie. I I, I love the man's soundtracks. I, I love the, the music that he pulls together and the needle drops that you know he, he employs throughout each movie that he makes. I think time and time again, even with his best movie, Rejects, I I think he's always fighting against his screenplays. I think his screenplays are always the, the, the worst things about his movies, uh, whether the movies are good or bad. Um, he needs someone to write, probably write for him or help him write. And he needs to allow, and Tarantino suffers from this as well, allow the characters and the story to play out without interrupting it. With the author, yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Although I, I agree with you entirely, but at the same time, when Tarantino himself showed up as the narrator in *Hateful Eight, I, I, I nearly choked. I was laughing so hard. Uh, well, that is <laughs> wonderful. Oh, it's not literally show up in the film. It's like allow. <laughs> 
because he's then telling you that this Western exists in his universe, which is fine. And I loved when that was, ha- was happening, but I would see some things that would happen in, in some of their films, like in house of a thousand corpses. It's like, you would have this repetitive stuff that felt like a music video. And, and it's like, I understand that those are tropes he likes and things that they like, but they're not helping move the story forward, even though he likes it. And it's a darling that he's in love with. It's not doing service to the film. And when your obsessions, your particular obsessions, do not service the narrative in the film, you have to remove them, even though they're your favorite things. You have to remove them. I agree. I agree. And that's, that's what I mean of the author getting in, getting in the way of the narrative a bit. So far, like, well, zombie aside, say, you know, looking at the franchise and knowing that you're a huge fan of these movies, when we look at the first four, they're all quite different from one another. And then we have the Platinum Dunes movies and then we have uh, Texas Chainsaw 3D and then the upcoming Leatherface, which I am really interested uh, I to see. I, 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 I'm kind of fascinated by the setup of that and I'm even more fascinated by the uh, the, the varying reviews for it. But um, moving beyond that, as a fan, where would you like to see the franchise go? What would you like to see out of the next Texas Chainsaw? Such a hard question. <laughs> I like with with Seth Sherwood, who's the writer of, and I, I will say to the kids playing at home that he is a friend of mine, is that I, I'm dying to see that movie because I love that it's a period piece and I love that it goes into the background of some of the characters. But what you said is very inspiring. It's like what, what about Drayton Sawyer? It's like I would, I would love these films to be period films that focus on more like more on the characters. I mean, I wouldn't know what to do if someone gave me a Leatherface. I never even think about it. I just accept Leatherface exists in my life as my cinematic friend that lives in my head and the family that if I ever met that they would be very welcoming to me. That's how the franchise exists. It doesn't exist as, as as something that I would think about what would be next or what their other stories are. But to me, it would always be a sense of play, uh, just just to know the the family more. Maybe in a period, maybe in a period piece, maybe get to know Drayton Sawyer's character more. I mean, I love Jim Seidel's performance. I, the more that I watch the first Chainsaw, the more I'm convinced that that is the performance of the film over you know Gunnar's leather face and. Oh, yeah. That, that beautiful mask, especially in 4K, where you can really see the see the performances. <laughs> but that's that that's how the family exists to me. I don't know what I would do with them. I mean, Leatherface and I are always hanging outside the the house. Maybe there's more cannibal families. I don't know. I don't. I don't. I don't relate to any of the franchise or any of the creatures in the film as something that I would want to see them do next. Fair enough. Just, because they're they're internalized as part of myself. Fair enough. I uh, looking past Leatherface, then looking past the family, and I, I will say just before I ask this that I agree that you know the the notion that the next movie is a period piece is interesting, and maybe even doing more like that might be interesting because I think there's something about setting movies like this, or you know, the movies having been previously set in modern times when it was even you know seventy four or even the mid eighties, but the idea of events like this taking place decades ago I, I i think it's much easier to believe that you know a, a van full of kids could get swallowed up by the earth you know that they could just disappear or they could run afoul of somebody without having the world at their fingertips with a cell phone that they could call and you know plus oh god texas chainsaw 3d i'll i'll 
always be haunted by the uh, the FaceTime sequence in that. And I'm just like, you know, I I would just like to see all of that removed. And I would like to see the modern world removed from a story like that. And I, I think, you know, we were talking about Rob Zombie a second ago. I think that's one of the things that I appreciated about 31 was that he said it in the 70s. And all of a sudden it was kind of believable to me again that a group of people could just go missing like that. And um, I don't know. I, I don't often get that feeling in modern movies. So, yeah, I'm rambling about that, by the way, and I'm sorry. But uh, but anyway, looking past Leatherface and the family, how do you feel about the other characters in Leatherface? I mean, we have uh, Kate Hodges' Michelle and we have uh, William Butler's Ryan. And when we're introduced to them, they seem kind of different from the typical I don't know, protagonists that we've gotten up until this point in the franchise. Well, in the first one, your main, I mean, everybody remembers Marilyn Franklin is sort of the, the main protagonist in that they're both one's a survivor. One's fascinatingly annoying. (laughs) These two, we have stretch. She's our own dynamic. I mean, we wouldn't, we wouldn't really meet stretch in real life, she's a DJ. She's cool. Dennis Hopper's character works for the law. But this is sort of a return to what we consider a more typical slasher folk in that they're everyday people. I mean, William Butler's character is pretty much the the everyman. And Kate Hodge has more of an edge. I have the original Chainsaw 3 script, and it was a little bit different in that Hodge's character her character was much more rock and roll and edgy and she's the one driving the car. Yeah. Huh. Wow. And I believe Leatherface in, in Scow's original script is like wearing a leather jacket, which is just so fucking cool. You know what? Oh, that would have been neat. I would make a punk rock Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I've always wanted to take like when the part three figure comes out, like I want to put fake tattoos on them and have like, round rock around his shoulder around like his neck area <laughs> like the new york hardcore boys and just like you know knuckle tattoos because the next version because punk rock it looks very collage and we're always decorating our leathers right Leatherface can totally be punk rock it could be like my version of jubilee but with the texas chainsaw massacre series Leatherface wearing a leather jacket seems like such a no-brainer i'm stunned that it hasn't happened i know now would it be actual leather or would it be a skin jacket i i think it'd be a combination because you get you get your you get your mc jacket maybe you took it off a victim and then he's gonna decorate it with other things maybe he just sort of embroiders patches out of human beings and ears and stuff like that and and puts (laughs) them on he could do that i want to see this action figure i i want to see that movie now right that would be do the the punk rock leather face (laughs) so it takes place in the 80s of course and it's sort of like where leather face was at some point because if chainsaw 2 takes place in the 80s and punk rock happened in the 80s we're gonna have to so if that's earth prime (laughs) because that's what we're talking about because it's like chainsaw 1 and 2 is probably earth prime actually tonally 1 and 3 make more sense Totally. No, totally. That they, that they would be part of the part of the same world. Two is crazy, so it's just it would be like Crisis on Infinite Leather Faces. I'd have to make an alternative timeline <laughs> where, where it's more like Return of the Living Dead Leatherface type of movie, which is fine because a lot of people are like, "Oh, what about continuity?" I like in comic books 
that every Batman ever made cinematically wise and on the TV is every Batman. Cause someone's trying to tell me it's like, Oh, like the, the sixties Batman is not Batman. And it's like Bob Fingerman, Batman. That's what it looked like. Totally. And it wasn't serious. And it wasn't before. Cause we all love the Frank Miller stuff. Like when Frank Miller came in or like when Alan Moore came with different series and made this stuff more adult and dark, we all love that. But it feels like that's all we've gotten for the last nearly 30 years, though. It seems like once Tim Burton made his Batman, which I love, I love Batman Returns even more. But it feels like from that point on, it's all just been Frank Miller. And some of it's been great, but I don't know. I kind of want a Neil Adams Batman movie already. That is a a wonderful idea. So in in looking at that world, the comic world, where there are a lot of different iterations, the author sort of defines where the bat is i think we could do that with leatherface make punk rock leatherface i and he I, would be better because i'm in love with him he would match me much better when we're on the red carpet together <laughs> okay so tell me mid 80s punk rock leatherface chainsaw families does he, he goes eventually... to new york city no he goes to new, he goes to urban environment i was gonna say jersey just because he could go to jersey he could go <laughs> hang out in the pine barrens and then My sometimes God, the family really cool. hangs out at CBGB's in uh in the city, and he gets uh some punk rockers. I think we started out kind of joking, but now I really, really want to see this movie. And there might be like a cult of chainsaw because I always my dream, my fantasy is sort of to be accepted, sort of by by the family. So I don't know. Because it was interesting, their political beliefs. When I talked to Toby when we, when I was at South by Southwest, I said that I, who is the villain of the film? And he felt that they're both sides of America. So it's not like one is the heroic side of America and one is not. He just, you know, you had the hippies and then you had the cannibal family. I think the cannibal family is more libertarian than conservative. Like thinking about them, they're... I think that's where they would sort of... Well, I mean, because they are rednecks. They're out in the woods, but their politics, they seem to be devoid of... I mean, because they're, they're anachronistic. They're almost anachronistic. They're out of time. They're out of place. The place is Texas. The place is rural. But nothing else is around them. They don't go to the supermarket. They eat, they eat human beings. I don't know. I don't know if they would... If, if, they would be very nationalistic, <laughs> as as we as we see today, because they don't care. They just care about like, are you my family? Are you not my family? Are you meat? Are you not meat? It's very binary for them. It's a very simplistic way of of life and being. And even more terrifying, I think, as a result. I mean, they... and that, that, that that's what would lead you into to the capitalism of two. Oh, are you me? Are you not me? Because that's very capitalistic. I was thinking like if I had to do because I need to like I own my third like I mentioned my print of Chainsaw Two, so it needs to play at some point in my life. I was thinking is that Part Two and Dawn of the Dead together. Oh, that would be the double feature that makes sense. And in conversation, though, like Chainsaw Two was already steeped in the eighties when it was created. Dawn of the Dead predicted like Reaganomics and that kind of capitalism because that was way before that really blossomed, the consumer culture. And they're both about consuming. And uh, I don't want to depress us both again, but I, we, we just lost both men who gave us those movies too, which 
again, brings me back around to this being a really terrible, terrible year for horror fans. I mean, two guys who were kind of visionaries in their own right. And now, I don't know. I was just talking to somebody about they this. Changed, again, again they, they changed modern genre. Where would we be without them? They're so important and so loved. And this is what I think about fan culture and conventions that I don't know if they were embraced by by cinema in general. You know, maybe they felt that they were sort of out of place in there. But all the fans that got to tell Toby and George they, that how much their work mean to them, how much they love them. I know um, Felser, I, I mentioned who, who I work for, it's like he spent all his time documenting Romero's career and a lot of Toby Hooper stuff. The same with David Gregory is that they had documentarians, they had fans, they got to meet their fans. I mean, I hope, I hope they died with like knowing how much they were loved and knowing how important they are. Cause I know like after the fact, when everyone passes down, it's when all the, the fancy magazines, why Chainsaw is important, why Romero is important. It's like so critically important to cinema. And I will always preface that way. It's like important to us, genre filmmakers, but critically important to cinema. Absolutely. And I wish, you know, we didn't always wait to do retrospectives on, you know, uh, filmmakers works like that until after they've passed. You know, I think it's important to try and tell them what they mean while they're still here. And definitely, I mean, I unfortunately never got to meet Mr. Hooper, but I did meet George Romero at a convention once. And it was as a fan who had loved Dawn of the Dead for years by that point before I did meet him. It was amazing to see a line of hundreds and hundreds of people waiting to meet him and tell him what his work meant to them and have things for him to sign. And that was, that was great to me because I mean, the, I wouldn't say the genre was unfair to them. Maybe just, maybe just the business, but the fact that both guys seem to be to some extent struggling to get stuff made in the last decade or so or decades of their career, it just seems so deeply unfair because without one, you know, we wouldn't have, zombies without the other we wouldn't have um you know i i imagine all of the movies that have been made now about you know a, a group of kids or a group of people running afoul of you know an evil family out in the middle of nowhere i mean how many movies have there been like that now and that all seems to stem from chainsaw i think or at least a success so I, I I agree. I I'm I'm bummed that they perhaps didn't always have the opportunity to make what they wanted to in the last years. But also in those last years, I think I would hope that they knew that they were loved by all of their fans and that they had numerous fans that did love them. I agree. Can I ask before we go? Uh, and I can't believe we're already at an hour. Um, do you have any final parting thoughts on Leatherface? I think everyone out there in TV land should give Leatherface Texas Chainsaw Massacre three a try. I think before they watch it, they should probably look up Splatterpunk, look at David J. Scow, and understand what milieu this movie is being created in. I want them to look at the career of Jeff Burr, and he seems like a lot of times he's handed these uh, these sequel projects, and he's always excelled at getting them done, getting a great performances out of people, and just watching something from from the 90s. I just, everyone needs, as I sit down and make everybody watch Paint Your Wagon, which is true, like people have to, uh, and Ninth Configuration, Leatherface. It's great performances all around. Leatherface in any movie has not looked as great, and neither has his chainsaw. And it's it's endlessly repeatable, that dialogue. So get with the program, Leatherface 3, guys. 
<laughs> I agree. And I will say, I we are long overdue for that Blu-ray. I hope that New Line gets off their ass and gives us a special edition that we need. And if they do, I hope that you do have a hand in the bonus features because it's clear that you, I think you adore the movie more than anyone else. So it, it would only be fair, I think, for you to, uh, to help deliver that. Yes. Well, thank you for having me on your podcast. It was wonderful. Hey, thank you so much for coming on and for choosing this movie to talk about. And uh, can I ask, where can folks find you out online and uh, what can we keep an eye out for from you in the future? Well, they can find, they can friend me on all social media because I'm not a snob that way. I'm, I'm going to be on Facebook, uh, Heather Buckley. My URL is joe.spinell.lives. <laughs> they can find me there. I'm on Instagram as uh, underscore Heather Buckley. I'm on Twitter as underscore Heather Buckley. And the, the new things that I've, I've worked on, because I do a lot of stuff for Kino, it's like if you guys are getting the Rawhead Rex disc, oh, I, I put together play. all those extras. So Did I, you really? You know, yeah, I, fr- I framed them out and I, I set them all up. They're, they were shot in England and Ireland and Germany. Just pretty wait. cool. Night, Night Angel is going to come out soon. I believe those are both October releases. I'm excited this month, and it was a labor of love to get it done, the, the long writer's disc, because I'm a big fan of Walter Hill and a big fan of Westerns. So that that's up, and it, and it has an interview that I, because I, per, I personally went out to L.A. to interview Walter Hill and Ry Cooter for it, and a lot of the brothers are on it, including Randy Quaid. Oh, wow. So those are those are some things that are out there in the in the world. And, it's, and at some point, I worked on... Um, some secret synapse extras, which are in post at the moment. So that's it's going out in, into the world. I always love synapse. I love their stuff. The holy man, Dame Jr. and that Suspiria restoration. I can't wait. I can't. Why wait. hasn't he should be canonized? If not a right, like he's already done so, so many things, but canonized. It should have already what happened. Could... But if it doesn't after that movie hits Blu-ray, I mean, I God, it just. Yeah, I agree. I, I cannot argue with that a bit. And it took them forever, and it's like $50. It's like, yes, do you know how much time to like to go through Suspiria and make it beautiful? I think that was the one release of theirs they've done recently for Steelbook where I didn't, and maybe I've just unfollowed all the right people or wrong people, as the case was, but I didn't see any grousing about the price of the Suspiria disc. Tenebrate, yeah, phenomena, sure, popcorn, people were... You're buying a work of art. Exactly, and the I don't... The thing th- itself, the restoration is a work of art. Let alone the steel case itself, which is beautiful, and all of the yes. bonus features that are going to be on there. I... Oh, I can't wait. All right, well, hey, thank you so much again for being on the show and for choosing Leatherface. It's a great movie, and more people need to give it a shot, and uh, it was a blast chatting about it with you. Awesome. All right. And thanks to all you listeners out there. As always, make certain to like, subscribe, share, use the comments section, rate and review us on iTunes, and stream at us on Facebook and Twitter. That's at Screamatics, and I am at Jinx1981. Until next time, folks, thanks so much, and have a great weekend. There's roadkill all over Texas. Got that right.